with me please to the passage we read already in Acts chapter 26 and looking this evening verses 26 to 28 Acts chapter 26 and at verse 26 for the king knows about these things and to him I speak boldly for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God, that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. Now we haven't got time to go into a preliminary that would follow the steps leading up to this moment. You have to go right back to chapter 21 and follow the steps from there on when Paul was apprehended, when the Jews raised accusations against him, and when eventually he ended up being taken to Caesarea. He then came firstly before uh, Felix, the governor, who was then replaced by Festus, that we find from chapter 25 onwards. And here in chapter 26, King Agrippa himself, the king in that particular area set by the Romans in terms of having a provincial kingship, uh, who was himself by birth a Jew, but was not in any way mindful of the Jewish religion in any serious way. He belonged to that family known as the Herods. He was a great-grandson of the Herod who lived in the time of Christ's birth, Herod the Great. Herod the great son, Herod the Tetrarch, was the Herod you read of at the time of John the Baptist, who caused John the Baptist to be put to death. And then his son, subsequently, is the Herod that you find in the book of Acts in chapter 12, the first Agrippa, Herod Agrippa I, who made persecution against the church and caused the death of James, and also cast Peter then into prison at the same time. You find that beginning of chapter 12 he laid violent hands those who belonged to the church and of course he came to his demise uh, as indeed was his due and he's replaced by Herod Agrippa II that's the Herod now that you find Agrippa in this chapter and these Herods have a history of being extremely selfish living debauched lifestyles and uh, not really at all to be uh, looked to for any moral guidance. Indeed, they were, they were a most immoral lot, and the Bernice, indeed, that's spoken of in this chapter itself, who is passed out as the queen to Agrippa. She was actually his sister, uh, who lived with him in an incestuous relationship. So they're very distasteful people, these Herods. They really are not people in any way to be admired. And uh, as you read about them in the scriptures, the little you have of, uh, uh, little you have of a description of them you can very soon see their ungodliness and their, uh, their uh, determination to just take issue with uh, serious religion, and especially when it comes to Jesus Christ and dealing with him and with his cause. These are some of the steps you can follow through how these things happened, and then you find the coming of Agrippa there in uh, chapter 25. Uh, when Agrippa comes, there you have in chapter 25, uh, verse 23 onwards, you find the Agrippa came with Bernice with great pomp 
and entered into the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. So there's a great show here. It's uh, going to be just uh, something of a real arrival that's going to be talked about. That's what they're about. And it comes then to uh, Agrippa saying uh, to Paul, you have permission then to speak for yourself as he's brought before him uh, by Festus. And that's when Paul begins his own defense. What's really interesting and what's really important is Paul is not in any way overawed by the greatness and the pomp and the ceremony and the, the status that's given politically and in society of the time to King Agrippa and to Bernice and to the royal party and to all that accompany them. It's really a great show. It means nothing to Paul. He respects authority as God-given is not one to actually act in a way that's disrespectful to that authority the way that you might find people today doing. But he's not in fact currying their favor at all. What he's out to do as you read through his defense, as you read through what's effectively his testimony, what becomes obvious is that he's dealing with Agrippa and with these, uh, uh, these others who are people of importance, not seeking to win their favor, but actually seeking their conversion. And that's what he's about when he comes to address King Agrippa himself. He's not interested whether Agrippa agrees with him or not, whether Agrippa bestows favors on him or not. He's not like others who just fawn uh, 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 obedience and uh, grovel in the, praise of, in the presence of such high authority and high office, hoping to get something out of it. Also, nothing like that. He's committed to the gospel. He's serving King Jesus he knows a greater king than King Agrippa. He's not overawed by being in the presence of this earthly king. And as, you, as I said, what, what you see coming through, if you look at verse 18, for example, you'll see that Paul is setting out things which are absolutely essential and basic to the gospel and to the gospel message. He says that God had actually delivered him and was sending him to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. Then you read further in verse 20, similar emphasis there, uh, those in Damascus then in Jerusalem throughout Judea that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds and keeping with their repentance and then verse 23 he follows on by another powerful point the center of the gospel the foundational issue Christ that he must suffer that Moses had actually said these things and the prophets how they had shown that Christ this would come to pass that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. There's Paul punctuating his testimony with these powerful evangelistic points because he's concerned for the salvation of these people, including those in the highest authority like King Agrippa himself. And that reminds us that when we're dealing with opposition to the gospel, whether at a local or national or whatever level, that too is to be our priority. We meet with all kinds of ridiculous opposition. We meet some people who are prominent publicly, whether it's through blogs or ministry or whatever, meet with abuse, downright arrogant abuse. But we must keep in mind at all times that our aim is not actually to respond in kind. Far from it. Our aim is not even 
first and foremost, the winning of arguments. Our aim, first and foremost, is the winning of minds. The winning of minds to the Lord and to the Lord's ways and to the Lord's cause and to the Lord's truth. And that's really what you have Paul as a great example of here. That's what he is determined to set before this party, this important dignitaries and especially now Agrippa himself. So that brings us to how he dealt and spoke to King Agrippa himself. And uh, there are some astonishing things to see in the way that he dealt with, with Agrippa. So here is Paul saying to Festus. Festus had said with a loud voice, trying to intervene in this presenting of the truth by Paul. He said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. You've gone mad. Your learning has just made you lose your mind. You don't know what you're saying. And Paul said, again very calmly, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words true and reasonable words and that's a great lesson to ourselves not just as preachers of the gospel but as witnessing to Christ especially in a public way we have to make sure what we're presenting is as Paul puts it here true and rational words the message of the gospel itself not our version of it not somebody else's version of it but the gospel itself in true, tactful, loving, patient speech or writing whatever it is that's what we're committed to as the standard of God so that's what Paul is doing and he's making it clear to those that are listening that this King Agrippa actually knows about the things he's been speaking about he knows about Jesus he knows what's happened in Jerusalem he knows the teaching that's now taking place about this Jesus by Paul and other apostles who are disciples of Jesus that's not something hidden from King Agrippa it's not something that he's unaware of he's well aware of that fact and so Paul sets about emphasizing facts the issue the issue that he deals with is the issue of Jesus and the issue of Jesus is a fact in their society they knew about Jesus they knew what had happened at Jerusalem people had heard about the death of Jesus people had heard some of them regarded it as a rumor and not true that he had risen from the dead but Paul didn't regard it as a rumor he's presenting it as true and reasonable fact something that he himself had actually come to experience as a truth because he met with that Jesus as he says on the way to cause further havoc to the church Jesus apprehended him Jesus took hold of his life Jesus turned him around Jesus converted him Jesus made him a preacher of the gospel an apostle in his service and here he is saying to Agrippa I know or to Festus I know these things have not escaped the king's notice for this has not been done in a corner you see, that's all, always God's way, isn't it? When, when God comes to present the essentials of gospel truth to us, he doesn't leave the things that we need to know for our salvation in a corner. He doesn't hide from us the facts about Jesus Christ that we need to know and take as facts. Of course, you believe. First of all, you turn from the Bible to accepting these as factual because this is God's inspired word. That's your starting point always. And if you don't start there, then nothing is certain. But when you start here as God's truth, God's word, God's revelation of himself with God's authority and God's truthfulness behind it, this is really what you're then left with, that what it says here 
is in fact, as Paul himself said, true and rational words. And God's way of salvation is not obscure. It's not secret, not hidden from any of us tonight. There's nothing that you need to know for your salvation that God has actually hidden from your view or God has made really difficult to know essentially. Of course, there are many things in the Bible that are difficult to understand or that you need to apply yourself to as time goes on to understand them better. But the things that are essential for your salvation and what's required of you and for me to come to know that salvation in Christ, God has made them plain. Whatever you think of uh, parts of uh, what's been revealed as difficult, they are. But nothing there is of what's essential is difficult or, or, or hidden from our view or done in a corner, as, as Paul says. Because you come across, of course, we keep repeating this all the time, but it's, the reason we're repeating it is that it's something you're confronted with day by day. Where's the evidence? Where's the evidence that God exists? Where's the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead? Where's the evidence that there was ever such a historical person as Jesus? Where's the evidence that all of these things that Jesus did actually happened? Well, the evidence is here when you start with the truth of God's word. Then you regard it as God teaches you that this is the evidence and all the evidence you need. And that here you have things which are reasonable and true. But then Paul moves from there to emphasizing the facts about Jesus and what the king has come to know. He comes then to make it personal. That's where it gets really interesting. Because from verse 26, as he says, the king knows about these things. To him I speak boldly. And none of these things has escaped his notice. He's still talking to Festus there. Then verse 27, all of a sudden he turns to confront King Agrippa himself and says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. You can just almost imagine a packed courthouse taking a sharp intake of breath perhaps at that stage he's talking to the king in a personal way he's addressing the king as boldly as that he's asking the king if he believes the prophets is he really saying this is he really saying this directly to king Agrippa do you believe the prophets I know that you believe well he is because you see Paul is concerned first and foremost with serving King Jesus. And whether it's in, in the presence of Agrippa or whoever else, Paul is going to be true to Christ, true to his ministry from Christ. And he has to address Agrippa directly. And that is really how it is for ourselves too. A great temptation as preachers of the gospel, there are other preachers of the gospel here tonight, I know that they'll share this, this point very wholeheartedly with me. One of the great dangers we have is that we don't actually present the truth as plainly as it needs to be. And the great danger is that we perhaps would draw back a little from people, the fear of people being offended, the people of, fear of people being put off. But of course we have to accept the fact that if God is using us as we trust and as we commit ourselves to God, then God is in charge of the ministry of his gospel. It's his word. It's his ministry. And so tonight, if you are offended by anything I have to say as a preacher of the gospel, that's not because I'm personally getting at you. 
That's not because I have something myself personally that I find objectionable in your life. It's nothing to do with that. If you find the truth of the gospel, these words of the gospel, true and rational words offending you, if you find that you're upset in your soul, that you're upset in your conscience, that your conscience is striking you, what's really happening in your experience is that God is speaking to you. God is addressing you in the depth of your soul. You cannot actually read this truth seriously, deal with this truth seriously, whether converted or unconverted, and not feel and know its effects. If we are really coming honestly to approach the Bible as God's word of truth, then it's going to have an effect on our mind, on our souls, on our conscience, on our feelings, everything about us inwardly. And tonight, as we look at Paul's words to Agrippa, he made it personal as we also must. You don't come to be a Christian. And Paul is really saying, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. He's really taking King Agrippa to the point of personal belief, personal commitment. He is saying, yes, I know you believe the prophets. I know as a Jew... You have uh, been brought up to know the Old Testament scriptures, the prophets of the old times. I know that you believe that you accept that they were men of God, that God used them. But you see, he's leading Agrippa into a corner. And he's saying, I know that you believe. And what Agrippa is, what Agrippa is well aware of in, from his, his response, as we'll see in a minute, is that Paul's argument, Paul's words that are rational and true are placing him in a dilemma. And the dilemma is this. If the king says, no, I don't believe these things, well, he knows that the people that he rules over, these Jewish people, are going to be deeply offended. They're going to be outraged that their king is now saying, I don't believe the prophets. And if he says, of course I believe the prophets. If he says this to Paul, he knows that Paul's next step is, well, why then are you not accepting Christ? Why have you not accepted the one of whom the prophets spoke? The one that was predicted by the prophets and by Moses. This Jesus, verse 23, that the Christ must suffer, and being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So there you see, is the dilemma really that the truth places us in tonight and that's what we'll come to as we see Agrippa's evasive response here is Paul saying do you believe the prophets I know that you believe as far as it goes Agrippa is a believer but he's not a Christian he's not a believer in Christ he has not accepted God's way of salvation far from it and as we come to his answer, there's Paul's presentation of God's truth. Now we come to Agrippa's evasive response. Now it's a bit of a difficulty here because the words that are used in the Greek text of, of Acts can be translated different ways. And you know the, the well-known, famous way in which the authorized version uh, has uh, translated these words. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Many famous sermons based on that particular rendering or translation of these words 
that uh, what Agrippa is really saying is that he's on the verge of commitment. He's on the verge of believing, almost persuaded. So many times you've seen and heard perhaps sermons on that. And of course respect that. That is a possible way of translating it. But I don't think it's really the best way of translating it with all due respect. Because it's nearer to what you have in the ESV here, both from what you see here and what Paul says next to him in response. King Agrippa, uh, I know that you believe, and he said to Paul, in a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? In other words, Agrippa comes across from that statement, from that response, as somebody who's really been touched by Paul's argument, somebody who's not been left unaffected by what Paul has said, not just about Jesus and about Paul's own conversion, but about Agrippa's belief as well in the scriptures of the Old Testament. I know he said that you believe. And Paul knows that the next step is going to take him to Jesus and to ask, well, have you accepted this Jesus then? And so Paul says, uh, so Agrippa says, it's really an evasive answer. It's a non-committal answer, an answer that really wants to get away from the point that Paul is making and its effect. And what it's saying really is, in a short time or um, in a little, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Or you could translate it without a question, in a little. And really, that's, that's literally what the words are in Greek. In a little. It can mean a little time or a little persuasion. That's really literally what it says. In a little, you persuade me to be a Christian. And that's why the translation was taken, um, I'm all, you almost persuade me. And here it's saying, in a short space of time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And however you take the translation, the one thing that's very clear is that uh, Agrippa is being very evasive. And that's a very common way of dealing with the way that the truth comes to touch our minds and our conscience. Because we all know the gospel. We all know the truth of God to some extent. Many of us have had the Bible in our experience from the time that we were young. We know its teaching. We can follow what Paul is saying as if he was saying it to ourselves tonight. Uh, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And I could say that here tonight from this pulpit to all of you gathered here. The, most of you, if not all of you, if I ask the question, do you believe the scriptures? I know that you believe. The answer will be in the affirmative. Yes, I believe. I believe this to be the Bible. I believe this to be inspired of God. I believe this to be unlike any other book. I believe that this is the book where God has revealed himself. I believe all that. I would never deny that. But then you see, have you committed your life to Jesus? That's the next point, isn't it? Because the evasive answers include such things as, well, I need to think about this a little longer. Or, if I commit my life to Christ, what will the impact of that be with people that I work with or people that I have charge over in my work? Or what will the effect of that be in terms of how other people are going to see my life from now on? Or you may have the evasive answer that says, I'd like to do that. I really want to be a Christian, but I really want to be sure first. Well, how sure do you want to be? 
Can you be any more sure than the Bible itself in the presentation of the facts to you? If you're here tonight and you're not saved, and there are people here, I'm quite sure, who are so used to the gospel and would never deny if you asked the question, do you want to be saved? You would, you would never get them to say, of course I don't want to be saved. That's not why I come to church. It's a social thing. You wouldn't say that. You'd say, of course I want to be saved. I want to be like those Christians who have come to confess their Lord, who live a consistent life, in whose life I see something of Christ from week to week. But I want to be sure about things first. I want to have more evidence. I want to have something in myself of assurance before I take that step and commit myself to Jesus. Or perhaps you have done that and haven't done it publicly yet. Well, here is something really that you take from this passage where the teaching really pretty much comes to this. The facts of the matter are already there. Faith and trust in Christ Bring salvation into your possession. Jesus is God's provision for every aspect of your life. In this world and in the world to come. For every challenge you will meet, Jesus is more than sufficient. For every need, however deep it will be in your experience, from now on to the end of your life, Jesus is greater than any of those deep, difficult experiences of life. Whatever it is you consider may at the moment be a problem to committing your life to God. The Bible takes them all away and says, God's persuasive argument sweeps all that away. You have no reason left not to accept Christ. You cannot be any more sure than God himself makes it out in the Bible. Remember, friends, that evasiveness, evasiveness is the method of the devil. Evasiveness is the method that is placed by those who would not want you to believe, to commit your life to Jesus who would try to persuade, well, you, you, you can do so much of that. You can accept the Bible. You can live a respectable life. You can be a member of the church. You can go to church. You can appreciate the gospel. You can be friends with those who are professing Christians. You can have all of that. You can help with the work of the church. And many, many do, who have not yet uh, openly confessed to Jesus as their Savior. But, you see, the next thing is, well, they'll say, that's actually enough. And the devil will want to persuade you tonight that when you've gone part of the way and said, I believe the scriptures, I believe what they are, and he will say, well, surely that will do. Don't get too serious about it, he will say. What is there not to be serious about? What is there not to be serious about? When eternity is facing every one of us. When the offer of salvation in Christ is open to every one of us. Why should anyone in this building tonight say, for whatever reason, I'm not ready yet. It's not my time.
I will do it, but not now. That's like Agrippa's evasive answer. An answer that really just wanted to move away from what was in his mind through the preaching of the apostle and just wanted to get out of that dilemma by this evasive answer. Don't do that with your soul. Thousands have done that and ended up not being saved. Many have done that and never yet afterwards felt as near to committing their lives to Jesus as that time when the truth dealt with their minds. Tonight, if you are even a little persuaded that you ought to be a Christian fully in every sense of the word in the Bible, don't put it off. Don't live to regret it. You may never be as ready as you are now to commit your life to Christ. That's Agrippa's evasive response. But look at, finally, I'm just going to finish with this. It's a warm evening and I'm just not going to carry on too much longer. But the third thing, along with Paul's presentation of God's truth and Agrippa's evasive response, is Paul's evangelistic conclusion. Paul said, whether short or long, using the same kind of words translated, whether short or long, he said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Now you see, Paul's passion for souls, Paul's passion for these people, including Agrippa, to be converted, this is what he's making his priority. He's not concerned about time, not concerned about status. What he's doing is, if you like, he's holding up these chained arms that are his as a prisoner. And you can just hear the sound of the chains as they rattle as Paul holds up these chains and says this, except for these chains, he said, I would you all be like I am. In other words, free in Christ. Saved. Delivered from sin. From the bondage of sin, from the tyranny of sin and Satan and death. That's what he says in verse 18. When they open their eyes, they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. And so, Agrippa, Bernice, and the party, off they go. That's it, finished. Machashaw, back to something else. Who's free? And who's chained? There's King Agrippa. He's free to go. He's the master, if you like, of, of uh, the situation in, in, terms, in human terms. So there he goes along with the party and he leaves Paul there in the prison, chained as Paul himself was referred to. Who is free and who is bound? Friends, remember, there's a freedom which imprisons. And there is a custody which sets free. There's a freedom which imprisons. Your freedom out of Christ, so-called freedom. The freedom of the unsaved. The freedom of that world out there tonight that doesn't want to know God. That wants nothing to do with the Bible, with the effects of the Bible. They want to be free, 
free of all of these rigorous and restricting truths of, of the Bible as, as they regarded, although they wouldn't say it as truths, of course, truths in the way Christians presented. Are they free? Of course they're not free. They're still bound by sin, by the imprisonment of sin and lostness. Whereas, if you read Philippians 3, Paul talks there about being apprehended by Jesus Christ. Christ reached down and met him on the road to Damascus. He took him into his custody, if you like. That's why Paul often in his letters speaks about being a slave, being a servant, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. If you're bonded, you think perhaps, well, that's certainly not free. Surely, of course it is. You're bonded to Jesus Christ. You're free from God's condemnation. You're free from everlasting death. You're free from everything that is the wages of sin. And you can have everything in this life and you can have all the freedom to want you want to do what you want to do but you're not free you're not free unless you're free with the freedom with which Christ makes us free came across some words of some new hymns I wasn't aware of They're called new Scottish hymns you find them online just the other day I came across them and one of them is based on Psalm 139. I'll finish with these words. And one verse of that, uh, that hymn as it's sung goes as follows. How blessed I am, so bound with love, surrounded yet so free, in doubt or blessing, life or death, my Lord remains with me. Now I've underlined these words in, in the print as I have it before me. So bound with love, surrounded, yet so free. Here's someone saying, I am bound with love. I'm enclosed within love. I'm surrounded by Christ's love. And yet I'm so free because of what that love is. How blessed I am. So bound with love, surrounded, yet so free. In doubt or blessing. Life or death, my Lord remains with me. May that be your conviction, your testimony, as well as mine tonight. Let's conclude our service now singing in Psalm 119. As we seek God's blessing upon his word, we finish with praise in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 at verse 145. That's on page 412. And singing uh, from verse 145 to 149. Page 412. With my whole heart I cried, Lord, hear, I will thy word obey. I cried to thee, save me, and I will keep thy laws always. I of the morning did prevent the dawning, and did cry, for all mine expectation did on thy word rely. These words 145 to 149, with my whole heart I cried, Lord, hear. With my whole heart I cried, Lord.
allow me to get to the main door, please, tonight after the benediction. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore. Amen.